0: You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Axway, leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years. If our last episode dealt with the what of open banking, today's episode tackles the why. Why is open banking happening? Why is it so important? Why has this seemingly boring thing, this technical spec, this government regulation, triggered a global movement towards open data? As we try and answer these questions, we'll zoom out and take a look at the big picture not just in terms of the wider goals of open banking, but also geographically, as we discuss some of the similarities and differences in how open banking is being approached in different regions. While we will get a little philosophical, the goal here is to provide a perspective as to why open banking is happening, based on actual activity from the front lines. Our guest today is Gavin Littlejohn. Gavin is the chairman of FDATA Global, a not-for-profit organization that leads negotiations between banks and regulators to develop their open banking initiatives all around the world. Prior to joining FDATA, Gavin was the founder and CEO of Money Dashboard, a global fintech application that helps give businesses a fuller picture of their financial data. Gavin also heads up the fintech stakeholder group of the UK's Open Banking Implementation Entity, or OBIE, and is an advisory board member for the Berlin Group's PSD2 implementation, the leading European open banking standard. Welcome, Gavin. Thanks, Aya. Look forward to sharing some thoughts. Likewise. As one of the most vocal champions of open banking, surely you have had to explain it to folks who have never heard of it before. How would you do that? How do you explain open banking to the average person?
1: The one thing that it absolutely is not is a technology. It's not API. It's not screen scraping. It's none of those things. What I like to use is try to compare it with electricity. We uh, don't actually use electricity directly. We use applications that connect to it. So quite often I hear from groups, how do we use open banking? When you want to use it, you connect an application.
0: Okay. I get that. Open banking is something I plug into, sort of like a utility. Let's keep going. If you live in Europe, you may have heard that open banking came along in response to an EU regulation called the Revised Payment Services Directive, or PSD-2. Without getting into the specifics of the law... Can you simply describe for our listeners what the difference is between how a European interacted with their bank prior to PSD2 versus afterwards?
1: In terms of the applications that the customer could use, Very little has changed. Many of the applications that operated in Europe were providing a service before PSD2, and they did that in the unregulated space, using a process of sharing their personal banking credentials through their application or through their web browser to enable them to connect their financial accounts to whatever application they wish to share with. So the key thing that's changed is that now the customer has the right to share that data and the bank, if you like, has got no right to block the sharing of that data. And going back maybe through 2008, 2009, 2010, there was a lot of confusion about whose data the data really belonged to or who had rights in the data. And at that time in Europe, many of the European banks asserted that the data was their data. And they've done that in most other markets until it has been made clear to them by law and regulation that the data belongs to the data subject.
0: Quick note, the quote, data subject here is, well, you or me, or whomever the data is about, back to Gavin.
1: So the combination of the general data protection regulations in Europe and PSD2 has enabled a citizen in the European Union to uh, have unfettered regulatory capability. It's also set out the rules under which the customer has made all of things go wrong. It's a complicated picture, and I'm happy to unpack that story for you as you wish.
0: Let's unpack. Let's start with that crucial time period when PSD2 discussions first started. 2008, 2009, 2010. This is the period of the global financial crisis, sometimes called the Great Recession. To what extent did those global economic conditions drive the emergence of PSD2?
1: I'm not entirely certain that they were directly connected. What I can say is that there were a number of firms in the fintech domain who emerged during that period in response to opportunities that entrepreneurs, of course, see when they're thinking innovatively. And those companies started to gain traction in the unregulated space by typically removing friction from in customers' lives. Now, the other side of the story, of course, is the technologies that have appeared in parallel. So the financial crisis is, is one part of the story. But during that period, of course, we had the rise of increasing sophistication in data and data analytics. And we also had the rise of social media. And then we also had the iPhone, and that changed everything. There was now applications, there was now big data, there was now social channels to talk to customers. But the problem was always still the large banks dominated the ecosystem and were, you know, really able to write to their customers and dissuade them from using these third-party services that weren't regulated.
0: And here marks the first act in our story of why open banking. Over the last decade, the rise of digital and mobile technologies has led to an explosion of innovative tools from financial technology providers, or fintechs. These fintechs have been slowly sneaking into territory historically reserved for the banks. The issue was, and is, that these new players are completely unregulated. And most ask for your credentials, your username and password, so banks told their customers not to use them. To Gavin, The answer was obvious. Find a way to let the customers have the financial tools they want, but do it in a way that can be controlled and regulated. So here's what he did.
1: I campaigned for the movement of these different things into the regulated space to give the companies in it protection and to ensure that the customer had sufficient protection as well, and to make sure that the banks couldn't decide that they wish to block it and to try to create some kind of regulatory framework through which that emerging new ecosystem could thrive.
0: So you're talking about establishing actual enforceable laws that underpin open banking, right?
1: Yes, and when we talk about the use of the word open, it reflects how well those laws have been established. And in, in some markets, those uh, laws are clearer than others. And looking across the globe, we can see some markets where we have very clear and quite modern privacy legislation. And these are typically expressed in the market through explicit consent So I guess the building blocks of open banking or open finance are firstly the right customer data right, the ability for the customer to make that choice. The second is that they're able to express that choice through both giving consent and taking it away and for that consent to be really explicit. The third is the context of risk and liability and who's in charge of looking after the customer's interest when things go wrong. And the fourth is the legal and regulatory framework that gives force to those first three. Without those core capabilities being established, it's not really open. It's just tech.
0: Tell us about how the ecosystem is developing in Europe compared to, say, the United States. What are the key differences?
1: I think if you were to look at it in contrast with the United States, which is where open banking really started, where the customers From Yodley and Cash Edge in 1999, 2000, started building applications that financial services companies could connect multiple accounts on behalf of the customer. In the US, it was really the big banks that went first, the large financial institutions. And from 2002, 2003, you would have been able to log in on a old, plain vanilla website on, let's say, Bank of America and see your Citibank account or vice versa, or your Fidelity brokerage account. In Europe, they've only just started right now, I mean, just in the last year or so since PSD2 came into force. And really, if you think about the rise of open banking in Europe versus the U.S., the market conditions in Europe are now, from a regulatory perspective, far ahead of the U.S. The market penetration of open banking in the U.S. in the unregulated space is miles ahead by per capita, probably 10 to 1%.
0: Let's zoom in a bit. What are some of the things Europe got right and perhaps some of the things they got wrong?
1: The market landscape in Europe has got a number of things going for it. It's got a privacy legislation in GDPR, which gives the customer very clear and explicit rights in the data. And it's got legal framework for sharing of financial data, which unfortunately is only limited to payments data. So at the moment, you can share your bank current account or checking account data, your credit card payments and so forth under a regulatory framework. But if you share loan or mortgage data or investment data or pension data or insurance data, it falls out with the regulatory framework, which was created by PSD2. And then from a continental European perspective, then didn't put any standards body in charge of making sure that the high quality standards were coordinated and they left it up to the market. So lo and behold, the market then went out and made a a mess of it and they didn't have enough time in the regulatory timetable, in many cases, to do a job that they wanted to do, but many didn't invest in it or take it seriously. And at this moment in time, variously reported maybe 15 20%, no more than that, of the APIs in Europe are worth any value. In addition to that, some of the regulatory issues, like the ongoing impediment of having to re-authenticate every 90 days has made open banking in Europe much worse than it should have been had some of those things been dealt with differently. So I'd say the original context of PSD2 was a good building block albeit you could say it was narrow in scope to payment, but the implementation with no standards and a couple of the things that came through in the regulatory and technical standards messed things up. So the European Commission and the EBA will need to work on figuring out a plan to mitigate those circumstances which are causing their policy to fail.
0: Let's cross the pond to the U.S. How's it going there?
1: In the U.S., there's a very complicated Regulatory landscape with multiple different federal regulators and there's no federal privacy legislation. It's unfortunately quite a fragmented environment and the market conditions for open banking in the US are getting worse year on year, which Having said that, the U.S. is making pretty good progress on the technology led by the financial data exchange, but the customer still doesn't have the right to share their data with any actor of their choosing, and it's still within the gift of any bank to choose whether or not they wish to offer their API to any fintech. And with absolute certainty, there's been several instances of large FIs saying to fintech firms or aggregators, you're not getting access to these APIs unless value changes hands, which means that, of course, the banks are still in complete charge of which fintech services the customer can get. We could end up in a situation where if a customer is multibanked, that they find that one of their banks has been given permission through one application and another bank has given the technical connection to another application and that the customer just can't get a full view of their financial life. One of the terms that we might apply to that would be closed banking. And it's been similar in New Zealand and in Japan where they've started to forge ahead on the tech without getting the legal and regulatory and privacy framework established. There's obviously the high level of market penetration, but continually deteriorating legal and regulatory position where we're even starting to see one of the bank's associations acquiring an aggregator. And obviously there's a number of competition things to think about we don't quite know how all of these will play out but these markets need to be open and competitive ensure that any market entrant that has the required qualifications of fit and proper people privacy and security standards and capital and capability can enter the market and do well in it if they come up with the right propositions
0: It's fascinating that you describe both the regulatory-driven approach in Europe and the market-driven approach being taken by the U.S. as open banking. As I'm sure you know, there are those in the U.S. who don't like to use that term at all, whether it's capital O, capital B, or little O, little b. Why do you think that is?
1: The backstory of what open is or is not is complicated area. And we we as FDATA have been campaigning for open finance. Open banking would be a a subset of open finance. And and really, that is the fact that the Customer, be they a consumer or a business, should have rights in their economic data, whether they're payments data like PSD two in Europe, or whether they're I want to be able to share my investment data or pension data or you know other things about me, depending on what I'm trying to do. So from an F data perspective, we always like to promote that clarity of consent rights and liability as building blocks of the framework and make sure the legal and regulatory force is there to protect those things.
0: Here we are at act two of our story. Despite some difficult back and forth, banks, fintechs, and regulators around the world have gathered to discuss how to enable financial innovation. Organizations like the OBIE, FDX, and FDATA have worked hard to establish early standards for their regions and continue to improve them every day. All over the world, open banking is now happening, a genuine global movement. It may go by various names like open finance or consumer-directed finance or customer-directed permissioning or the consumer data right, but a rose is a rose. All these efforts are united in a common goal to define an open standard for sharing financial data and to give control of that financial data back to its owner, you. And this is where things get tricky. This idea of data rights comes in and it raises the question of whether personal ownership of data should in fact extend beyond banking. Back to Gavin.
1: It's slightly nuanced because, of course, unlike having a pound or a dollar, we don't really own the data in the same way because, of course, either I've got the dollar or you've got the dollar can't both have the same dollar. But we can both have the same data. Um, so it's really not so much ownership, but clarity of rights and the ability as the customer who is the data subject to be able to choose to share. And then when I no longer want a service to be able to choose to take away that sharing, the data subject should be able to choose to share their data with an application that may better meet their needs. And that's what we're talking about when we mean data
0: rights. But Why? Why is it so important for me to have data rights? What are we trying to achieve here? What's the end game?
1: If I think about the history of financial services, I mean, the really, really smart folks who've operated in financial services have found network effect opportunities to accrue value. And one of the things which has helped to protect that value is customer friction. So it may take hundreds of years to build up the customer volumes in the big bank, but the ability for customers to move away to, for example, an alternative bank could be one of the main peer group, or it could be a new player in the market. As financial services becomes increasingly algorithmically driven, data driven those organizations which have the customer relationship have the data and are therefore at a competitive advantage in being able to maintain the relationship and create unfair split in value between themselves and their customer
0: in australia they went straight to the heart of it and instead of adopting open banking per se they introduced the cdr the consumer data right very much what you're talking about Do you think this ownership of data ends with financial data, or does it go beyond?
1: Philosophically, I think it goes beyond. If I'm wanting to try and access a better utility supplier or telephony supplier, the range of complexity is just as nuanced as it is in financial services. You could have... Lots of different combinations of tariffs and providers. And there's no doubt that these different pricing and tariffs and terms and conditions and product nuances are deliberately complicated. I mean, they're constructed in a way to get the customer to connect. And then it's very difficult for the customer to perceive whether or not other products are of like qualities and, and like value. So the customer data right in Australia for me is one of the market leaders.
0: Gavin. Let's take the optimistic view. If you could wave a magic wand and all of the banks and the financial ecosystem, they had open banking, what would that look like? What possibilities does it open up for those who embrace it?
1: It's to build really intuitive applications that solve for the customer's needs, even when the customer isn't really focusing on them because open banking works in the background it keeps up to date you can build really top class categorization engines with the customer's explicit permission monitor their financial affairs and help them find the best sources of all kinds of financial products and help not only a a better financial life from a, a value perspective but critically from a friction perspective and that when material changes happen in the customer's financial life that the applications are switched onto it and and can adapt. So from an end customer's perspective, there's lots of wonderful outcomes to flow from getting this right.
0: Can you perhaps describe one of these wonderful outcomes?
1: computers are really, really good at dead hard sums. And if you give those computers the correct algorithms, then they can compute those things and help the customer get to better outcomes. So if you don't enable the data to be shared and the application only ever sees a slim part of the customer's financial picture, you'll never be able to give holistic financial advice. So it's important in the modern world for the customer to be empowered with their financial data to enable them to access products and services which work for them, not for the necessarily for the incumbent supplier of their financial services.
0: And there it is. Without access to all your data, your full financial picture, you'll always be limited in the financial decisions you can make and the products and services you can use. As long as your data is owned by someone else, they may be sharing it to their benefit instead of yours. Here's Gavin boiling it down with a concrete example.
1: You've got one pound or dollar and you want to know what to do with it. Should you put it in your pension? Should you top up your investment? Should you pay down your mortgage? Should you pay off your credit card? Or should you put it in your normal checking account? If your financial life is only properly up to date in one area and the application can only ever see one part of your financial puzzle, they're never going to be smart enough to offer you that holistic advice. Let us also not forget, only a tiny portion of the population are served by regulated financial advice. You know, it's in the single digit percentages. The rest of us fend for ourselves, and without the uh, power of those applications armed with the correct data, there's always going to be no real opportunity to serve the mass of the population that don't get financial advice. So for me, it's an absolutely critical thing to get right.
0: What role does Data play in helping all of this become real?
1: Data was formed in 2013 during the period where access to payment data was negotiated into the second payment services directive in Europe. And it extended out from its initial beginnings, lobbying for that regulatory change to working in the, what became known as the Open Banking Working Group in 2015, where APIs were proposed. And in the UK, I think we co chaired four of the six working groups, including the security and, and technical standards groups. So we've been front and center in proposing. The use of APIs for solving in PSD2. Not long after the UK's Open Banking Implementation Entity was set up, a number of our members in the UK who were also operating in continental Europe and also operating in the North American market said, Well, we've had great success working together on these issues as a community, why don't we have FDATA in North America and FDATA Europe? So the FDATA North American chapter is now about as big as the European one and includes a whole variety of different types of company from SME lenders to mortgage lenders to accounting platforms, credit reference bureaus, aggregation services. And FDATA then set up in Australasia, helping to work, for example, on development of cdr and then the indian chapter was set up in 2019 and then earlier this year fdata south america was launched focusing on assisting the brazilian open open finance initiative but clearly with an eye to helping colombia peru chile argentina and other markets so our role is one single mission which is promotion of open finance to help companies and people that benefit from it.
0: Are some regions doing better or worse than others?
1: One is that all the markets that are making the easiest progress have got the foundation building block of having a customer data right of some description. So we've got the New Data Protection Act in India, we've got LGPD in Brazil, we've got CDR in Australia, got GDPR as a foundation building block along with PSD2 in Europe. So more broadly though, there are lots of organizations who are developing technical standards around kind of API initiatives. The technical standards are really, really important. We've been recommending the UK's Open Banking Implementation Entity and the Financial Data Exchange in the US both adopted the financial grade API, the so-called FAPI standard developed by the parties in the Open ID Foundation, which is an international consortium of different tech and financial sector companies working together on creating common security profiles for this. We see that that sort of work being an absolutely critical thing in developing interoperability and best
0: practice. So how has it been going? Are global banks embracing open banking, would you say? I have a very mixed message on that. So the, the global banks
1: are recognizing that open banking is a thing and it's going to happen. Many of the banks across the globe are still fighting against the thought that another party might see access to their customers' data. They have to really embrace so that this just doesn't become a economically disincentivizing for them and doesn't become a regulatory compliance exercise where the regulation compels them to participate, but actually brings advantages, is not in the supply side of the API equation, but in the demand side. They have to learn to embrace... Open Banking as a TPP, as a fintech group That will enable them to get a better understanding of where their customers are when those customers are not with them, what other financial products the customer has elsewhere. They'll get an understanding of how to better serve credit products, better serve savings and investment products. So there's a huge advantage to banks in embracing Open Banking
0: One project FDATA is working on is the Global Open Finance Center of Excellence, or GOFCO. Gavin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? The Global Open
1: Finance Center of Excellence was set up to solve for the issues in the marketplace for open banking and open finance that can only be solved through collaboration. One of the challenges if you're wanting to build a new product or service or a product in a new market is where that product is algorithmically distributed, not having training data from the market to enable you to develop and and test. And the problem statement is really that the customer has got no real reason to give you data if in return you can't provide for that customer a product or service. And you can't provide the product or service until you've got the training data. One of the things that's inhibiting and slowing down the rise of open finance is having access to a data sandpit of training data. So we approached the University of Edinburgh, which hosts the UK's national supercomputing infrastructure and is surrounded by world-class data scientists. And we simply said to them, it would be wonderful if we could work with you on creating this data sandbox. The first point is to take data from across the globe, uh, from insurance, from banking, from fund management, fintechs from various hues on a pseudonymized basis so that we can track the cohorts forward. And the second was to develop global economic observatory using the same data set to enable us to have a longitudinal study of how humankind earns, spends, and saves through the lens of both consumers and businesses. The third capability that was being evolved was looking at algorithmic bias and discrimination. The fourth capability was to develop global open finance technical standards working group, which is already well in hand to pull together the national and international API initiatives and have them work together, supported by cybersecurity professors who would create a digital library of all of the API standards emerging across the globe, and to really reduce the engineering overhead security risk and complexity in the market
0: incredible what an amazing opportunity for international cooperation let me ask the obvious question do you see all of these efforts converging towards a global open banking standard
1: i uh, dream that dream
0: that is indeed the dream one api one common shared way to bind all the banks in the world together the way the internet binds all the world's computers together so that instead of banking being confusing opaque and expensive it becomes simple clear and empowering and best of all since it's an open standard everyone has access remember Gavin's electricity analogy like that
1: If you think about this, like electricity again, you've got the data payload, which is your appliance. That could be your television, your refrigerator, and the electricity also has a plug. Well, in the instance where you don't get to a single security profile, every time you buy an appliance, you're going to have to bring it home, get your screwdrivers out the toolbox and wire it straight into the wall rather than plugging it in. And if you're trying to connect to hundreds of banks, there are something like over 10,000 different banks in the United States. There's over 6,000 in Europe. Trying to connect all of those parties using a unique connection creates a level of engineering overhead which is insurmountable. So it's really important that we try to reduce complexity and reduce risk and make those connections easier to be made.
0: Let's close by getting a little bit philosophical. How can open banking affect people's lives for the better.
1: I've been an entrepreneur operating in open banking since 2005. My journey into that was obviously you have a business, you want it to be commercially successful. But the real feeling of being able to give for the customer frictionless experience that enables them to know where their money is, to feel confident in the decisions they made To be able to find things when they need them and not have them worried, regardless of whether you don't know which bank account or credit card you use to make a payment and be able to find it. And then to be able to leverage all of my financial data as a customer to get a fairer deal.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Gavin. Where can our guests find out more about you and your work at FDATA Global? They
1: can go to the FDATA website, fdata.global, and they'll find information about our charter and what we do and key papers and who our members are and what our policy positions have been. So they're very welcome to look at that and can follow us on our social handles on Twitter and LinkedIn.
0: Act three, the close. This is where we are today. Although still wearing many names, open banking has quickly grown into a global phenomenon, with regions around the globe creating similar standards bodies and consortia to discuss how best to adopt it. With the help of standards bodies like FDATA, many have moved into the harder parts of the problem – the building blocks Gavin mentioned. Consumer data rights, consent, and liability. Young efforts like GofCo aim to encourage international cooperation around the development of standards creating a space to share knowledge and best practices. Already, some common ground seems to have emerged around core elements like security profiles. While significant challenges still remain, make no mistake, the groundwork for open banking is being laid as we speak, not just within different regions, but globally as well. Why? Simple. To build the foundation for the digital economy of the 21st century. A foundation based on open banking. Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode was made possible by Axway leaders in enterprise integration for over 20 years, and creators of the Amplify platform. To learn more, visit axway.com.